You're listening to the Wes and Walker Show. This is another box. Goodness gracious. <laughs> it's Wes. Oh, it's multiple. We got little soccer balls. Oh! We got rugby balls. We got the basketball. And Walker. These guys are happy stuffed balls is what they are. Only on Sports Radio 92.7 FM WFNC. Good Lord. That's going to be a drop. We <laughs> I guess you could say Thursday. You've been playing around with a nickname for yeah, Thursday. Yeah, you know, just having a little <laughs> bit of fun with it. But this is the Wesson Walker Show Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. Text line is lit 704-570-9610. Hit those socials, WFNZ on Twitter and Instagram. At Brian underscore 72. At HTB underscore Josh. And at Walker Mail on Twitter and Instagram. As well as most importantly, oh! Oh, he got you. You couldn't even finish it. What you got, right. Pity? Oh, 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 okay. I didn't know I was the one breaking the news. But, uh, Walker, you told me during the break. <laughs> this is playing perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I figured when you said that you had the news, you were the one that's going to break it. I just hit the sounder. But the Atlanta Falcons, that team that Wes was talking about down, down I-85, they've requested permission to interview Panthers defensive coordinator Ejero Avero. I did not set you up well. I will take blame for that. Let and me get that neck. You did a nice job. No, you keep saying that, and you're going to find out what it would mean for me to give you that neck. Anyways, yes, I do have Ejero Avero having the permission um, from the Atlanta, or not having the permission, but the Carolina Panthers, Ejero Avero, I wonder if they would just deny Atlanta that permission, Wes, because they did that with Jacksonville. The only thing is... It's for a parallel job for Jacksonville. Atlanta is seeking permission to interview Avero for the head coaching job. Right. So I don't think Tepper would deny that. I wouldn't. Although Tepper is. Tepper. I don't so think you could do did. that. Yeah, yeah. If he did do that, that would be absolutely awful. I don't read much into that at all. I've seen some of the candidates that they're talking about Atlanta ones. I don't really think that. I think they're bringing him in, but I don't think he is a serious, serious candidate unless they lose out on some of the guys they really want, like the Belichicks and some of the other candidates that I've seen attached to them. You think they're more offensive-minded, too? Uh, not necessarily offensive-minded. I just think there are other coaches that they want. I think they would – I would probably guess four, five, six coaches over him. I, I would go offensive mind just because it seems like they're going to make a change at QB. You have to. But who else are you going to – Taylor Heineke or – Desmond Ritter. So would you give any defensive-minded coach a job? Well, no, I'm just saying Atlanta. I know, but based off just our conversations, I feel like yeah. that you would want all 32 coaches to be offensive guys. No, I I would. I've told you. <laughs> Mike McDonald would be somebody that I would love to have as a head coach mm-hmm. as well. I'm saying from an Atlanta standpoint, yeah, no it's very comparable to Carolina where you're going to try to get a quarterback, maybe a reclamation project. If you get Kirk Cousins, maybe defensive-minded, that would make sense. I'm operating in a space that they're going to get Justin Fields or they're going to get a new quarterback in the draft. I think it'll be Fields, Russell Wilson, or Kirk Cousins. So if they did the veteran route, then you're right. Defensive mind would make a lot more sense. But if they got a younger guy like Justin Fields, you would probably want an offensive mind, I guess. Perfect sense. Yeah, that's what it would make sense to me. All right. Well, without further ado, it is time to go to the campus. Kona. All right. Well, we know that uh, Nick Saban. Stepped down as the head coach of Alabama after an illustrious career. And I know that we did give him his flowers at the beginning of the show. 
But man, I got to give him just a few more flowers because when you talk about everything that he was able to do in Tuscaloosa, I mean, it was absolutely insane. So our final send-off for him on the Weston Walker Show, we talked about the championships. He had seven total. One of them he got at LSU. Nine-time SEC champion, 206-29 and and in 17 seasons. Only lost 29 games at Alabama. But the thing that was crazy was the enrollment. Their enrollment increased from 25,000 to 40,000 students. That's a 60% jump compared to the 10% national average during his tenure there. So when you look at the money he was making, you could argue that he was underpaid. And then overall, 123 players under Saban at Alabama have been selected to NFL teams, 44 first-round picks, four Heisman winners at three different positions. That is quite impressive. And so Alabama paid him $130 million over 16 seasons, but you could argue that he was worth much much more. And so when we go look at the odds for the next Alabama head coach, well, Dan Lanning looked like last night that he was going to be the front runner, but he said no, announced it to his team. They put up a little cute video and all that as if we needed all that to know that he wasn't going to take the job. But right now, your current odds, according to CFB Homes X page, Mike Norvell is the odds-on leader right now at plus 150. Kalen DeBoer from Washington is plus 200. Lane Kiffin plus 700. Sark, Steve Sarkeesian is at plus 1,400. And Dabo Sweeney, Clemson fans, plus 2,800. And then I'll just give you for kicks and giggles, Deion Sanders and Urban Meyer, both plus 3,300. What would we think of Mike Norvell, if he were to be this higher, is it underwhelming? And who do we think is the best fit to come in and replace Nick Saban out of that list of candidates? Or do you have somebody else in mind? So, I think Steve Sarkeesian is the best fit. Steve Sarkeesian having some type of rapport with Nick Saban in Alabama, that stop being the reclamation project that he needed in order to go to Texas makes a lot of sense. The other thing is, If you're asking Dan Lanning or any of these other coaches to leave a program where you are already set up to win, Mike Norvell winning right now. No, he didn't get to the college football playoff, and maybe that's a jump that you could see him make. Hey, I'm never going to make it there. I'll just go to Alabama. Thing is, now the college football playoff field is expanding to 12. Florida State wins all but one game. They're going to make it into the college football playoff field. So if you're Texas or if you're Steve Sarkeesian at Texas, both of those programs have very similar expectations in that if you don't win at the highest level, then we're going to get rid of you. And so it's not necessarily the biggest step up in the world going from Texas to Alabama. And so I think that's the smallest jump from one program to another based off of expectations and what you can get away with before you get fired. Sarkeesian for all of those reasons, makes the most sense to me. Mike Norvell, I think, would maybe be a little underwhelming. You'd probably want something a little more prosperous from what he did. I know he got undefeated and then didn't make the playoff, and people had a problem with that. Sarkeesian seems like the real deal, though, and so I think that's what would make the best fit. Uh, Well, I would have to agree with you. A lot of people talked about last night how Dabo's window kind of closed and Dabo's attitudes towards a lot of the new era of college football mirrors that that we've seen from some of the more old-school coaches. A lot of people are saying that's why they don't think he should get the job. 
Sark, I would say just because of that factor, even though I don't quite buy in because Clemson has an entire NIL building dedicated to that. But I would go with Sark as well, just as far as personality, temperament. Could he handle it? He's been there. He's coached in championship games, won championships uh, at Alabama. Because Lane Kiffin, I just think he's too much of a wild card, even though I do think their offense would be doing a lot of damage. I think he could win there. Uh, I think Kalen DeBoer, I'm not sure enough about him yet to say he's worthy of the Alabama job. And then Mike Norvell, uh, we already know, I, I don't think that would be a good fit. I think that would be a very underwhelming hire, especially as much as he loves to. Even though at Alabama, you know, he's getting a bad rep as far as just using the transfer portal relatively exclusively because all the quarterbacks that he's recruited out of high school from Florida State are now gone. And so that could be a little bit of a cause for concern. But at Alabama, you're going to get so much talent that I don't think you have to utilize the portal that much. But I will go with you, Sark. Fiddy, what say you? I don't know where they're going to go with Dan Lanning because I, I don't I don't see Sark leaving Texas for Alabama. Yeah, I don't think he will leave. That's After he just got into the precipice of the playoff, you know, I think Bama's the best job in the country. I think Texas is the second best. Mike Norvell just hasn't done enough at the Power 5 level for that to be the type of hire to keep Bama fans believing that, that they're going to stay at the top of the sport. Something tells me, though, even though Dabo's window has closed, like he is the best fit for the job. He's Alabama through and through. Um, he'll have a little bit more resources at his disposal there in Alabama than he has at Clemson. He makes the most sense. Um, it's kind of like in the same position Roy Williams was when he told North Carolina no. Like, how do you tell home no? And if he tells Alabama no, if they go after him, you're, you're telling your alma mater no. So I don't know where they're going with Dan Lanning off the board. Can we talk a little bit about if Alabama is actually the best coaching job in all Let's of college football? Let's do so. What do you think, Wes? Because I don't agree with Fiddy when he says Alabama is the best coaching job that you could have in that sport. <sighs> That's the interesting part about it because, to me, Saban made it what it was. And I'm not sure that the next head coach can keep that same tight fist type of program and culture that Nick Saban had there because that was part of it was the fact that he was getting the best players, but he also kept them going. They played with a discipline and that you just don't see. That's why he and Belichick were closely compared. They ran tight ships. You weren't going to step out of line and you will be out of there because, for one, Nick Saban wasn't having it. And for two, just because of the sheer competition. I was telling somebody this morning, I said, hell, at Alabama coming out of high school, you better be ready to practice. Forget the games. You better be ready to practice. You go over there on scout team, you guarding a Julio Jones or somebody like that. You're going up against a Marcel Darius. You better be ready to go at practice. So from that aspect, um, I would say that Alabama obviously has the resources. They have the alumni. They've made loads and loads and loads of money over the years. So I feel like they're NIL, even though we did see Saban call out to the alumni and say, hey, we need a little bit more. I think you've got the resources in place to win. But how do recruits look at Alabama now that Saban's gone? Saban was that brand. And so we've, we're seeing recruits decommit. We're going to see kids transfer because I think Alabama is not viewed the same today as it was yesterday. That's why they have to get this higher right if they're going to continue on with their success. So I would say no, just because of the fact that, one, you've got to follow Nick Saban. And for two, like I said, I'm a quality of life guy. I don't want to live in Tuscaloosa. Hell no. Like, I'm I'm good on that. Give me <laughs> Texas. Give me USC. Give me any of that. Because when I get off of work, I got a lot of fun stuff I can do. 
besides living in a fishbowl with a bunch of fans hawking my behind all the time about when am I going to win the next championship. The reason I don't think it is is because of the expectation from the fan base and the university where those two things meet. The university expects you to get to the college football playoff every single year. The fan base expects you to win the championship every single year. Nick Saban set what I think is an impossible, not improbable, an impossible precedent. Like There's no way that you can reach the same type of heights of Nick Saban, and now everybody else is going to expect something very close to what he was able to do. And anything even remotely close to what Saban did might even be considered a shortcoming from whatever coach is there. So how much do you value stability in what you would consider the best college football job in the entire sport? Because I don't know how much stability you would be promised if you go four years and only have maybe one college football playoff berth to show for it. Man, you're out of here and they're looking for somebody else. You, you gave a lot of great reasons as to why you don't think it's the best job, but you didn't identify what you think the best job in college football is. Oh, I just don't think it's Alabama. Okay, I think so, it's, okay. Uh, give me give Texas. Me, give me a name. Well, I don't I, think I go Texas. I don't think it's Texas either because of the same expectations. Yeah, I'd go Texas because, like I said, for one, like I said, quality of living, but so also I've got unlimited resources. I th- yeah, because the city I, it, and it the would money. Ha- it would have to be a program that doesn't have that type of expectation every single season. Okay, that same expectation exists at Ohio State, it exists at Michigan, it now exists at Georgia, it still exists at USC, it exists at Notre Dame. So what school has less expectations to make it the best job in the country from fan base and administration? I don't know. There isn't one. Alabama's the best job in the sport. So quality of life, Miami. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe it is the Miami, <laughs> the city thing. How much does the city matter to you? Like, like oh, I just big. Think, well, yeah, like to me, it's. I understand your point. Like, I guess you're asking me to quantify something where I don't have a school that doesn't have those types of expectations. Well, I mean, hell, I guess what? You can go to Penn State. Penn State, James Franklin has been able to stay there without the expectation of them getting to a championship every single year. That's with me putting very minimal thought into who actually is a better job. Plus, it's not like you're talking about Tuscaloosa being so much better to live than College Station. So that's what I'm talking about. Like, I understand your point. If we really put some time to it, maybe we could come up with a list. But I'm just telling you, I know what is the hardest, and I think the hardest is Alabama. You want the number one answer for the hardest job in college football? I would point right there to Tuscaloosa, what you're calling the best. All right, well, Flipping to the hardwood, we got to get to it because of our uh, pseudo-Carolina player in the back back there, decked out in gear. Oh, look, he's put the shades on. You'll see that picture coming up shortly on uh, social media. But the Tar Heels have won 37 of their last 43 games against NC State as they hammered them last night, 67-54. They really pulled away in the second half, outscored them 37-26. Carolina's 4-0 in ACC play for the first time since 2015. Won its third straight road game, holding the opponent under 60 points in all three, holding NC State to 54. R.J. Davis led UNC in scoring for the 11th time in 15 games this season and the 30th time overall. Joshua, you have the floor. I mean, I don't necessarily say that I want or need the floor. It was just a great <laughs> reminder to NC State that in the first time in 50 years when these two teams, these two programs met at 3-0 and in the ACC or better, who your daddy is. And that even in a year where you think you're good and you think you can maybe compete for an ACC regular season title or finish top four and make the NCAA tournament, you ain't beating North Carolina. You're not beating Hubert Davis. And I got to tell you, man, I'm really going to miss DJ Burns front-running ass whenever he's playing overseas in Spain or wherever he plays his career 
uh, that's not going to be in the NBA because this man was blowing kisses to the Carolina bench in the first half and was sucking wind like me in the second half when I walk up the stairs from the basement. He was worn <laughs> out. Happen. He was gassed out. And they shot 27%, the lowest ever against North Carolina in the ACC era. My yeah. Tar Heels... They're legit, man. They're the best team in the ACC, and I'd be damned they're not one of the five best teams in the country right now. don't forget, 9.5% from three. Yeah, uh, North Carolina now has held three straight opponents to scoring under 60 points. The defensive identity that this team brings to the table is a lot better than we've seen in recent history. 57 for Pitt on the road, 55 for Clemson on the road, and NC State only scoring 54. North Carolina also did that on the road. It's really impressive, and I'm with you, Fiddy. And look, this has been in a roster I have been so excited to see all offseason long. Harrison Ingram had 19 rebounds, man. It, he did. Most it, ever by a Tar Heel against NC State in 245 games. I wanted him to get 20 so bad. I, I wanted it, He got 19 way too late. There was like 30 seconds left or so. But real question here. Has there ever been a more dominant player in the last 20 years for North Carolina that wasn't a score like that? Like, who wasn't the second scoring option on the team? I mean, John Henson was pretty dominant. Defensively, he was. He was a good shot blocker. Maybe Henson, in the last 20 years, you could go that route. But also, he was a pretty top offensive option. And I guess yeah, Ingram is, too. Uh, but Ingram is, too. I, I just think when Ingram isn't scoring, he still is a dominant basketball player. 19 rebounds, two of the top three games, or two of the, out of the last three games that he's played, he's had how many? 15 and 19? I, I just can't get enough of that guy. I, I thought that he was an excellent addition to this roster. That's proving true. R.J. Davis is playing like a player of the year candidate, still hitting shot after shot, playing in the clutch. Uh, it's a real team in Chapel and Hill. And Carolina was able to get it done, too. They they won ugly because they only shot 39% from the field. And, and that's happened the last few contests. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they've been able to win ugly. It, it's uh, Here's here's my one concern, quote unquote, like not real concern, but something you'd like to see get better. Better first half from them would be great. If you're a Carolina fan, you'd like to see themselves separate a little bit more. But other than that, I you see them turn it on in the second half. Well, I mean, you know, they, they beat State at their own game. Like, State wanted to slow the game down. They wanted to make it a half-court physical game. And as they normally do, they got bullied. They got pushed over, and they left it by the middle of the uh, middle part of the second half. So, I mean, look, I, I still think State's good. I still, I still think State can make the NCAA tournament. But it's just a reminder that Kevin Keats is not a winner. And he's never going to consistently beat North Carolina. Well, we'll see. Uh, you know, you guys are going to have to shoot better because when you have a team that can score that comes to play you, you know, your uh, fortunes might change like the Deeks. But when we come back, uh, it's going to be Sam Monson joining us from Pro Football Focus when we return on Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Weston Walker backs 
Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. Talking a lot of coaching news. Bill Belichick, Nick Saban, no longer coaching at their previous stops now. Feels weird to say previous stops. Even Pete Carroll, how about being the third biggest story? The guy that was at Seattle for 14 years, that won a championship, got to another Super Bowl appearance, and he's the third biggest story. It's crazy. We got a lot to get to. But now let's focus our attention on the Carolina Panthers, what they need to do this offseason in order to get I would say back on track, but I don't know if they've ever been on track. Wes, certainly not in David Tepper's tenure. So we need to find a way to get on track at some point. Who better to help us than Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus hopping on with us on the Body Works Plus guest hotline. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Sam. Sam, we appreciate the time, man. How are you? No problem. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, Sam. We're trying to figure out what the hell Carolina can do to fix all of the problems that they had, not only just with Bryce Young, and we'll see what David Tepper can do, whether he hires a GM first, pairs a head coach first with the GM at a later date, whatever. I, I feel like we just need to figure out what jo- what coaches would accept this job. And so many people feel like this Panthers roster and this organization is the least attractive job out of all of the vacancies. I do want to ask you this, Sam, what are the attractive traits like, what are the positives when looking at this Panthers roster? I guess it depends what your opinion of Bryce Young was as a prospect. Um, priors still matter, and I know we've just seen a season of him really struggling, but if you loved Bryce Young, the Alabama quarterback, if you loved him a year ago when he was coming into the draft, and you're an offensive-minded coach, you know, you're still going to be keen on the idea of fixing him um, and getting him back on track and, and unlocking that player that we saw in college so I think that element is definitely still going to be attractive to some coaches. You know, maybe not all. It, it wasn't like it was a consensus that Bryce Young was the number one pick, but more draft analysts than than not thought that Bryce Young was the best quarterback available a year ago. So I think that will still carry some weight, certainly in some quarters. Um, and I think that's by far kind of the most attractive element of this. The other part is, you know, okay, David Tepper is – proving himself to be something of a volatile owner or, you know, maybe of the kind of worrisome end of the spectrum in terms of how much influence or how much distraction he's going to cause, but he's rich and he's willing to spend that money. And, you know, I think there is an element to which that will be attractive to a prospective head coach compared with some other owners who, you know, you might have to battle to get um, a signing over the line or, you know, to get them to invest money to just try and make the team win. Sam, here's a two-part question. Because of Bryce Young being the most important piece on this Panthers roster, would you lean towards an offensive mind at head coach? And if so, is there an offensive mind you think works best for Bryce Young? Um, I don't think you necessarily need to lean as an offensive mind as the head coach, as long as if you're hiring a defensive mind, you need to know beforehand what's your plan for Bryce Young. And by that, I mean... I also need a name of an offensive coordinator. You know, you can't just sort of say, hey, trust me, I'm going to find a guy. I, I need to know what that guy is going to be because you're right. Fixing Bryce Young is is the only thing that really matters here. So I don't think that the guy that's doing that needs to necessarily be in charge of the whole thing, but that definitely needs to be um, in place before we do anything. Uh, I know, you know, they wanted Ben Johnson a year ago and he sort of withdrew his name from uh, the, the from the job and, and opted to stay another year in Detroit. I don't think Ben Johnson has hurt his candidacy from a year ago. I think he backed up 
that season with another great year for Detroit as offensive coordinator. Um, Jared Goff has had arguably the best seasons we've seen from him with the Lions, with Ben Johnson as his, as his coach, and he has multiple games during the last couple of years where Johnson has significantly outcoached the, the defense on the other side, you know, schematically won as well as just putting up points and, and won the game and, and the yardage battle and all those kinds of things. So, you know, I think Ben Johnson would be the first name on my wish list if I was David Tepper. You're listening to Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus on the Body Works Plus guest hotline and talking more about Bryce Young, what the type of quarterback he is, and you guys' film evaluation. What is an offense for him that you feel like is the best for him for, from a style perspective? It's difficult. I, I felt Bryce Young in college, his superpower at Alabama was throwing with anticipation. Um, all the things that Tua, 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 Tua Loa does well right now, um, Bryce Young was better at, at Alabama, you know, and Tua right now is maybe the best in the NFL at that. I mean, he led the league all the way through this year in terms of average time to throw with the, the quickest average time to throw in the NFL. He throws with better anticipation or throws earlier in the play than anybody else in the NFL. And he, he you know, to an extent he needs to with his arm strength. Um, but that offense is perfect for that. You know, the, the variant that he is running of that Shanahan offense really leans into his anticipation, his ability to just throw it to a spot over the middle, trusting that Tyreek Hill or somebody is going to be there by the time the ball arrives. I think Bryce Young threw with better anticipation than Tua did during their college careers in the same offense. So, and and even independent of that, this Shanahan scheme is the best scheme in the NFL right now, whether it's the Shanahan version of it, whether it's the Mike McDaniel version of it, whether it's the one that Bobby Slowick is running in Houston right now with C.J. Stroud, that offense is the best offense in the NFL. It is the current, um, you know, meta offense. So I would try and get that system in any variety I could, which kind of limits you back to, you know, Bobby Slowick being an obvious candidate. Sam, when you talk about you guys' free agent list that you put out and the Panthers, we know that they need a lot of things to help them out for next season. But offensive line is the focus here. Which free agents do you feel are coming available that are gettable for the Panthers that they should definitely pursue? Yeah, it's it's a tough year. It's not a great year for free agent offensive linemen. Um, there's there's not a ton of these guys that are at the high end of the, the spectrum, even the ones that are in that world of having shown incredible ability for top-end play, they're getting old. So, you know, it's a, it's a tough year to need offensive line and try and do it through free agency. One guy that I'm curious to see what the market will be like for him, um, given his career so far, is Mike Wenu from uh, the New England Patriots. He's, they've used him all over that line. He's been played at guard. He's played at right tackle. Um, I think he's at his best at right tackle. So from that point of view, it's not a great fit. Um, because that's the biggest strength on this Panthers offensive line. But I think you can slot him in elsewhere. And he's only ever played well when he's been on the field, but he has sort of, he hasn't always been given that automatic starter spot in New England. So I'm curious to see if he's able to uh, get the kind of money that his play would suggest he should have, or if the rest of the league is as confused by his career as the Patriots seem to have been. And he ends up being this sort of, bargain basement type of acquisition for somebody. 
And then I will ask you, too, just playing off of that one, the, the wide receivers. Is there a guy out there that you feel like the Panthers should target, that you feel like they can get that would be a great fit for Bryce and really help take this offense to the next level, so to speak? Well, obviously a lot is going to depend on you know what happens with uh, T. Higgins in Cincinnati, where they're going to let him go, where they're going to let him uh, hit the open market. Um, but I think generally – the free agent or the free agent wide receiver market is an awful lot better than uh, the free agent uh, offensive line market that we talked about before. Um, T. Higgins is an absolute superstar. I think if they could make that happen, it would be a fantastic addition. It would also fill uh, a hole in that receiving core in terms of stylistic uh, receiver. Um, I think his his ability to just win one on one matchups on the outside. Okay, he doesn't necessarily do it with separation, but he wins at the catch point and can dominate, can be a true number one receiver, gives a, a quarterback the kind of confidence to just put the ball in the air. Um, Michael Pittman Jr. Uh, is, is a really good receiver as well. Sort of, I would, similar, I think, stylistically to T. Higgins, maybe not quite as good, but he would be an intriguing option. Mike Evans, it, it remains to be seen if they're going to let him get out of Tampa Bay or if he ends up just re-signing and, and extending his career there. Marquise Brown, the, the Cardinals receiver, would be an interesting name, but I think that's much more of a gamble. If they could snag one of Michael Pittman or T. Higgins, I think that would be fantastic business. Sam Monson from Pro Football Focus joining us on the Body Works Plus guest hotline. And so, Sam, we've also had big-time contract negotiations with Brian Burns. That played well late into the offseason last year. Still, there is not an agreement by either party. What's more valuable to you for Carolina to take care of? Is it paying Brian Burns anywhere north of $27 million per year, something to that tune? Or is it paying someone like T. Higgins or finding another weapon that you were just talking about? I think it's definitely, like, if it's either or, you have to use that money to help Bryce Young. You know, whether it's offensive line, whether it's receivers, that's where the investment needs to go. And if it's a case of we can keep Brian Burns or improve the situation for Bryce Young, you have to improve the situation for Bryce Young uh, because he is he's the, the, he's the thing that determines whether this team is going to get better or not next year. And if Bryce Young can't improve, and if you can't improve Bryce Young, then Brian Burns being re-signed long-term is not going to make any difference whatsoever. Icky Aquanu is someone that we certainly were disappointed by this year. And if you look at his rookie season, we thought we saw some really nice things. Sixth overall pick. He was really starting to develop well. And plus, James Campen is so highly thought of. We thought he was only going to go up. And then he regressed so much in our eyes. Sam, it does seem like a lot of his struggles came off of blitzes and stunts. It, do you have hope that Icky Aquanu can get back to something close to his rookie year and continuing to grow from there? What is your impression of the first round pick there? I agree with you. I think he was a, a huge disappointment this season. And nobody expected Carolina's offensive line to be as bad as it was this year. And, and part of the reason that was the case was Icky Aquanu. Um, he looked pretty good as a rookie. It was a rough start, and then he improved as the year wore on. And sort of all of the science pointed to him getting better and developing and really locking down that spot and being a solid pickup for them uh, at that point. But he completely went backwards this season, in particular in pass protection. And yeah, there were a lot of mental mistakes in there as well and, and sort of confusion in terms of protections. But there was also just getting beat regularly. Um, and he gave up 11 sacks on the season, still had a dozen penalties as well. Just so many bad plays. And you know, we've seen better play from him already as a rookie. We know there's there's better play to be had from him, but 
it, it was definitely a, a huge, a hugely concerning season for him. And they need to figure out why that happened and, and try and reverse course and get him back towards being the, the player that looked like they were going to get towards the end of his rookie year. Sam Monster joins us on the Body Works Plus Guest Hotline. Sam, when you look at the season that Derrick Brown had historic as far as the amount of tackles that he had, but what do you make of him as far as when his payday comes up because of the lack of sacks or maybe tackles for loss that some people might want to see? And then I'll ask you the same thing about uh, Frankie Louvu as well. Yeah, Derrick Brown had an amazing season. Um, definitely more of a run stuffer than a pass-rushing interior tackle, but we knew that anyway coming into the NFL. That's the type of player he was. He's always been a better run defender than he is a pass rusher, but it's not like he's, a, he's been a bad pass rusher. You know, he had 40-something pressures this year. His PFF grade was, was firmly above average, um, and when you couple that with, as you said, a, a historic rate uh, against the run, 50-something defensive stops, those are tackles that are that put the offense behind the chains you know so impactful wins for the defense by far and away the best mark we we saw this year from a a defensive tackle i mean i think he's got to be shooting for top of the market money maybe there's going to be a a discount attached to that because it's more run defense than it is pass rush but you know he, he should be looking for an extremely healthy payday and then frankie louvu he's been really, really good for multiple years now. I think it took people kind of a little bit of time to um, to be aware of it, but last two seasons, he's been a full-time starter now, and the play hasn't dropped off. I mean, he was a situational guy that was grading really well, looking good, uh, particularly against the run, particularly on the blitz, and then they scaled up his workload. They gave him that full-time gig, and he hasn't seen a decline in production in those two years, so I mean, I think Luvu needs to be looking to be to get paid as well. He's he's absolutely earned uh, a big money contract to be a starting linebacker. That's Sam Monson. Great stuff from Sam Monson here on the Body Works Plus guest hotline. Go follow this guy on Twitter at PFF underscore uh, underscore Sam. We really appreciate the time, Sam, and we uh, can't wait to talk to you down the road. Anytime, guys. Take it easy. Derek Brown. Frankie Louvu, Brian Burns, lots of decisions to make. If you missed any of that interview, we will put that interview up on our website, WFNZ.com. I also talking that. about Bryce Young. Oh, I was just going to say that I love that metric. That's one of the reasons why I kind of like a- analytics, because I love that metric about the defensive stops being plays that keep the offense behind the chains. It doesn't always have to be a tackle for loss or a sack. If you tackle a guy on first down for two yards, that's keeping the offense behind the chain. So I like that a lot. Well, and and even, yeah, with him mentioning Derrick Brown and putting them behind the chain, so to speak, we, we talked about this a little bit. If the league is a first down league and you run the ball on first down and Derrick Brown tackles you for at most a one yard gain, like that puts the defense in a favorable matchup. And you're also talking about Derrick Brown being in that you know, with multiple alignments. I, we've seen him be effective in last year's base front, which is you know, different than what Avero usually goes. Odd man front is what he brings to his base package with his first year being defensive coordinator. And Wes, we've seen him as a top 10 graded defensive tackle in two different schemes now. Whether it was last year, whether it was this year, it doesn't matter. Derek Brown is an effective football player. And he's also an above-average pass rusher who is an elite run stopper. Maybe alongside Dexter Lawrence, the best run stoppers in the entire NFL. And so you just got to pay that guy. You think about it. If you let Brian Burns walk because you want to go help Bri- uh, Bryce Young on the other side, which makes total sense, 
you let Frankie Louvu walk, whatever. Like you have to make a couple of different decisions. I just, I just don't want to see homegrown talent leave this organization anymore. I want to see the guys that work out as top 10 picks stay here instead of being traded elsewhere because we shot ourselves in the foot with previous moves that we decided to make. Derek Brown could stop that trend of those guys leaving elsewhere for success. And instead, maybe we just have success here with the team that drafted him. Novel concept, but it would be great. They were the girl you bought to the dance, right? Yeah. That's exactly right. Exactly how I would have put it. That's Sam Monson. Again, we'll put that interview up on our website, WFNZ.com. Just click the Wesson Walker podcast tab. Okay, moving on from Sam Monson to fire or fizzle. I love this topic. It's a different one. It's National Milk Day. And so Wes is going to tell you whether the best milk sidekicks are fire or fizzle. That's right. Milk sidekicks. It's Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's that time again. Fire or fizzle? It's too fire. He needs some milk. And he needs Nicely milk done. Kick. You like that? Nicely done right there. Very apropos. It's too fire. So if you get that milk, what kind of sidekick do you need to go with it? Because we got plenty for you. One weird inclusion, but this one is a classic. A brownie or a chocolate chip cookie, Wes? Yes. When it comes to milk sidekicks... Are brownies and chocolate chip cookies fire or are they fizzle? Well, Matthew Hardings, a professor of chemistry at American University, told said once that it is partially due to the chemical compounds interacting on your tongue. Chocolate is a combination of cocoa butter, pure fat, and cocoa powder, which wouldn't normally mix. But chocolate also contains chemicals called phospholipids, which act as emulsifiers and allow foods with a lot of fat to mix with substances without fat. Milk is also full of emulsifiers. Without them, Hardings explain, the fat in milk would pool at the top, similar to the way oils do in an all-natural <laughs> nut butter. Chocolate chip cookies have a lot of fat in them. When they hit your tongue, the emulsifiers in milk help to smooth out the chocolate as you're eating it. Though your tongue can pick up the full-body taste of the cookie, eventually the milk quickens the process and makes sure your tongue receives an even cookie coating. Mm. I love all of that scientific stuff. It's all well and good. Phospholipids. But at the end of the day, when those warm cookies come out of that oven and a nice warm brownie comes out of that oven and you get that cold glass of milk, it is straight fire. What else did you think it was going to be? It can't be anything else. It's so straight fire. I can't stand it. I want to get milk and cookies, ice cream when I get home tonight. This is a weird one. Uh, chili? Yes. When you look up some of the list of best pairings with milk, it is chili. Okay? But listen, milk contains a protein called casein. I think that's how you pronounce it. Which can break down K2 
capsaicin, much in the same way that this soap yep. can cut through grease. Doctors have previously assumed that whole milk would be more effective against spicy foods than skim milk due to the former's fat content, but they both perform the same. A doctor indicated that the fat content isn't a factor in the fight against spice, but milk helps your mouth handle an oily chemical compound in chili peppers, as we talked about earlier, with the capsaicin that causes the well-known burning <laughs> sensation from consuming spicy foods. I'm like, Bill, not a science guy today. This relief is thanks to, like we said, the casein, a protein West. found in the cow's milk. Yes, Walker Man. Oh, I was doing Bill Nye. Okay, well, I thought you were going to answer a question. Sorry. Because I was going to answer your question. When it comes to milk and chili, <laughs> milk and chili, mm. it is straight. Fizzle, I'm you not drinking no milk home. with my chili, man. I mean, I get I get it. If it's hot, they say that's why they give you milk for these hot contests. I got it. But as far as a favorable pairing... If I need it because it's so hot, okay. But I'm not going out of my way to go get a glass of milk right. with some chili. And the chili's too hot if you need it for that. <laughs> All right, look. This is... Uh, you can't have one w- without milk here. Mm-hmm. Cereal, Wes. There's only one answer. Tell, tell the people how fired it. Well, the collision of milk and cereal dates to about the 1860s when a breakfast cereal predece- predecessor called Granula came into being. <laughs> Eating Granula dry... As Mental Floss succinctly describes it, was like trying to swallow construction rubble. Indeed, Lucretia Jackson, who may have been Granula's inventor, warned that milk or water was a necessary accompaniment, according to Mental Floss, which also points out that Granula was sometimes referred to as wheat rocks. From there, milk simply stuck around, according to these histories. Milk is rich in calcium, which is particularly important for children, for the babies, because they need it for the growth and development of their bones. And while some children might not drink a glass of milk on its own, a bowl of cereal with milk is a tasty way to encourage them to get some dairy into their diet. So when you talk about milk with cereal, whether you eat Golden Grahams or whether you love Tony the Tiger or Toucan Slam or any of those cereal characters, you better have some milk in there because it is straight fire. It's milk and cereal, one of the best combos of all time. Wheat rocks, huh? Wheat rocks, baby. Thank that God. dry cereal. I do eat dry cereal sometimes, though. Cheerios, I do. Yeah, thanks to Bebop from Rock Thrill reminding us of Friday. You put some water on it. It won't <laughs> hurt. What you got cereal take-wise, Fiddy? I was just going to say, when I eat cereal, I don't have milk in it. I might drink a glass of milk while I eat my cereal. I eat my cereal dry. Wow, that's interesting. All right, Fiddy just confirming he has dead bodies in his closet. We'll move on. <laughs> Next one up on the list for Milk Sidekicks, peanut butter and jelly. Bringing you back home, living in the nostalgia. What you got for us, Wes? All right. Well, the creamy texture and mild sweetness of milk complement the rich and nutty flavors of the peanut butter while also balancing the sweetness of the jelly. It's Fitty laughing back there. I'm sure you the degenerate is. is. You know he if is. If you're looking for a non-dairy option, a glass of almond milk or a cold glass of water can also be good choices to accompany this classic sandwich. I do like almond milk. Almond milk is good. But when you talk about peanut butter... And jelly. Doesn't matter what type of bread you like. It doesn't matter what type of jelly you like, what type of peanut butter, how you want to make it, crust on, crust off, crustables. I don't care what it is. It's straight 
fizzle. I'm not you drinking milk with my home. peanut butter burn. and jelly. Oh, no. Fitty is fist pumping like Tiger Woods back there. That, no, you guys are wrong. Milk with <laughs> oh, PB&J you a milk, is great. PB&J yeah. guy? Yeah. No, I mean, I don't PB&J. think it's the worst combination in the world, but I'm just not having milk with my PB&J. Me neither. What kind of jelly y'all rolling with? Oh, I'm grape all day, man. I, I like others, but grape. Blackberry jelly is the most underrated jelly of all oh, time. Oh, I'll bet that would be. Blackberry good. is good. Nada, that was the the origin of him calling me an uncultured savage, was saying that I like grape jelly instead of strawberry jelly more so. But I, I do. do like strawberry jelly. I do too. Yeah, I love PB&J, though. So. I like it all. Let's move on. One more to go. Not a surprise, but kind of a surprise. I'll leave you guys as the judge. Donuts with a glass of milk. Is it fire or fizzle to have donuts with milk? Well, nutritionally, like donuts, milk is a good source of glucose. Plus, you can't forget the protein. Milk usually has eight grams or more per serving, which works to maintain your state of feeling satisfied after a meal. Flavor-wise, again, you've got the contrast, the sweet of the donut, and then the kind of, I won't say bland taste, but the steady flavor of milk. Phospholipids. A, a mellow flavor to a very strong sweet flavor. And then there's the yamami or savory aspect of milk. Who's milk mommy? gives a proper mouth coating sensation as well as triggering our brain's recall mechanism back to our first experience with yamami. We'll leave that there. Who's mommy? But we're going to talk about donuts and milk. Listen, it is straight Fire! I've never done it, but I'll drink anything with donuts. Fitty, cut the music off. (laughs) I almost jumped the gun on that. Usually I remember it, but I didn't that time. (laughs) I haven't really done it like that either, but Krispy Kreme donuts with milk. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. There used to be this barber in Gaston. My mom used to tell me about He used to cut my hair and uh, said that he would eat a half a dozen with a uh, carton of milk. (laughs) <laughs> that is. I mean, I, I don't know about a full carton, but you know yeah. a little pint of milk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Krispy Kreme, when you go in there, they have the milk on deck ready for you. They know what time deck. it is. All right, Fiddy, what kind of milk take did you have? Anytime you grab for the microphone as dramatically as you do, I know something crazy is about to happen. Well, Walker said, or Wes said he's never done it. So when you eat donuts, or what are you drinking? Are you drinking apple juice, coffee? When I have a donut? Yeah. Yeah, um... Most scenarios, I'm having a donut for breakfast, and yeah, I am drinking juice. Yeah, I mean, for me, if I'm at Krispy Kreme, I'm getting that True Moo chocolate milk. Chocolate milk is so good. Oh, man. I love it. Yep. Chocolate milk is great. Now, I usually just don't have the opportunity to have milk with my donuts. Usually, it's somebody brings in, well, think about how many times we've had donuts here at the station. And there's not milk in the... uh, Yeah, you got to be... I mean, look... I'm sorry if you do this, but it'd probably be pretty weird if somebody brought a carton of milk in here and just had it on deck and you just had glasses of milk all over the place. Oh, okay, now it just so happens to go with my donuts. But we eat donuts without the milk all the time. Yeah. Our listeners must have liked this, man. It's pretty popular. I do see a couple of milk and cornbreads. Yep. My mom does that. Mm. Milk and cornbread is good. Cornbread's nasty. I have had. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's dry. If you cook it well. Cornbread and buttermilk. Okay. Mm, Okay. Buttermilk. Yeah. That's thick. <laughs> yeah, she'll eat that with, with the, I mean, drink, or oh, have it in the bowl with the cornbread. The only one we don't have here that people are asking about, too, is Oreos. Like, Oreo is the most common one. Well, I guess we said. You said chocolate chip cookie. Okay. All yeah, but right. Oreo I is. Specified. Oreo, I mean, it's America's favorite cookie. It's also yeah. Milk's favorite cookie. Dunk it. Just dunk it and eat it, baby. Yep. 
Milk yeah, sidekicks. Like, We're done. All right, let's move on. <laughs> it's, you didn't dunk much. All right, yeah, that's true. It's the Live Wire coming up next. Live Wire connect. Josh Fitty Marlowe. We have some sound from Trevor Sikama on Icky playing left tackle. Ross Tucker on David Tepper. Paul Feinbaum on the Alabama coaching search. Stick around right here. Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ.